Isaiah 55. Now hear God's word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Good morning to you, and I appreciate you and your pastor entrusting the gospel of Jesus Christ to me while he is away, is we say in Connecticut, doing that, taking care of that memorial for his, the, the, the dear saint who passed away. Greetings to you from Silicon Valley Reformed Baptist Church, a fellow fire church, and good friend of Steve Watkins. I've known him for quite a long time. I very much appreciate him thinking of me to bring the gospel to you, and thank you for your help. Um, just the, if you saw the issue of getting me up and down the steps, that's why I was up here the whole time. But be that as it may, we have a gospel to declare to you from Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, like most of the book of Isaiah, is about trusting God. In fact, you can put together much of the book of Isaiah by simply asking this question or hearing the prophet ask this question of Israel. What will you trust, yourself or God? 
Man or God? Idols or God? Whom will you trust? What will you trust? And why? The whole book of Isaiah is about trust and castigating those who have a trust other than in Yahweh, other than in the Lord God. The call of Isaiah 55, as we'll see, is a call to repentance. A call to, as James says, to return to God, and he will return to you. Draw near to the Lord, and he will draw near to you. It's a call to repentance, but it's also as much a call to trust. I would put these together this way, that in order to repent, we must trust the Lord to forgive. Does that not make sense? We must trust the Lord to forgive. We must take him at his word. That what he will do, what repentance means to him, is of great value. Of infinite value. If all heaven stops for a moment when one sinner repents and worships and rejoices before God, then repentance must be of much value. We need to trust that. Do you trust God? Do you really trust his promises? Our life as Christians is a life of repentance. A life of recognition of sin. A life of confession of sin. A life of confession of sin. And in that confession, must there not be trust that confession brings forgiveness? God hears our, our prayers. He hears our repentance. And he forgives. As in 1 John 1.9. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many of us have held on to that verse when we are so wrapped up in sin and we finally fallen on our knees in tears, confessed to God and begged him for forgiveness and known that forgiveness? Isn't that not preceded by trusting God that he will indeed forgive and that that forgiveness is a real, true forgiveness? <clears throat> well, do you trust God? Trust is a theme running through this entire book. Our chapter 55 was written to a people who are soon to be exiled to Babylon. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the history of Israel and Babylon coming in 586 B.C. And we're not going to go into a whole lot of dates. We can talk about that later if you're not familiar with it. But this people had sinned for centuries and prophet after prophet had come to them speaking the word of God and calling them to repent. And they would not. So God, in 586 B.C., finally sent Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, ransacked the temple, slaughtered many of the men and boys, abused the women, and took a lot of them, an awful lot of them, exiled to Babylon. These words were written some 150, possibly 150 years before all that happened. If you look at Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 55, that's prophecy about this people in exile. At the end of that section, chapter 55, which we have here this morning, they are called to return, to trust God's forgiveness and his restoration, to trust God and leave Babylon, where they had been for 70 years, where they had homes, where they had jobs, where they had friends. They were well integrated. They were well regarded. Three, their sons, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Mishael and Azariah were high officials. And Daniel himself, like Joseph in Egypt centuries before, was second only to the king of Babylon in authority. They had a lot to leave. How could they do so? It's much like us. When we hear this call to repentance, how can we leave our sin? By trusting God's word that he truly does forgive. It's a matter of trust. Do you trust God? Trust him that his will for you is not just better than what you have. 
going along with the reading there, you can get something better at a price. It's not even really the best is available. Because if you have money, you can get what is best. Now let's trust God that what his word says, what he promises, is not just better, not just best, but is every bit as good as he says it is. Do you see the difference? If you had money, if you have price, you can get the better, you can get the best, you can move up and get a Corvette, a McLaren, a Bugatti, whatever. All you need is money and price. But that's not what we're trusting. We're trusting that God's word, what he promises to us when we recognize our sin, when we come to him in repentance and know his forgiveness, that this is worthwhile because what God gives in return is every bit as good as he says it will be. That's the call of these 13 verses in Isaiah 55. To trust God that his offer is as good as he says it is. And it's the same for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Same for us in Jesus Christ. We must trust him that his promises, which we have by faith and not by sight, will be as good as he says they are. That all the straining after the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is going to be worth the effort. If we're going to live a life of true repentance, if we're going to recognize our sin and go to God confessing that sin and knowing his forgiveness, we need to trust that forgiveness. We need to trust God's word. Trust God that what he offers is as good as he says it is. The first couple of verses, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Now this is to a people who is doing quite well. They say, well, okay, we're going to have rich food here. What are you talking about? We have the best food. We're living in the superpower of the day. The economy is strong. We're part of all this. And we eat well. We live well. Now, it's, again, trusting God that he is offering not better, not best, but something as good as he says it is going to be. The Lord here is taking up the voice of the ancient Near Eastern water vendor. And the vendor would set himself up near the entrance of the city where travelers and merchants end their hot, their dry, their dusty journey. And his voice was something that would say this, or say something like this. Oh, alas, poor wanderer, how thirsty you must be. I know your pain, this voice says. I've been there where you are. I feel it with you. And here is what you need. I have it for you. I have water. It's the ancient Near Eastern water vendor. But see the humility of God who the psalmist says humbles himself to even notice us. He created everything, and now he humbles himself to even take notice of what he created. That God, who created all things, taking up this voice of a merchant and calling, beckoning a people to hear him. This word come is from the Hebrew for hoy, or a Hebrew word that sounds like hoy. It says lamentations, a note of sympathy. It's this pitiful cry that says to the weary traveler, I, I know your pain. I can hardly stand to watch you suffer. He says, ah, hoy, will you not come and allow me to supply your need? Now see the heart of God here. It's Psalm 113.6. It says he humbles himself to even take a look at us. Now think about it. The God of the universe who needs no person, he needs no thing. His glory is what it is no matter what happens, no matter anything else. 
His glory can never be diminished. This God takes up that voice. Can you imagine? The God of the universe, this holy, holy God, as we just sang, taking up the voice of a merchant and saying, come and buy my wares. Well, of course, he's not a merchant. And he's not selling anything. He doesn't want money. He doesn't want price. But what we see here is the heart of God, a God that we can trust, a God we can trust because he comes and he speaks to us in this sort of a language, not a faraway God, not some distant scientist watching lab rats, a God who deeply cares, a God who cares so much that he would humble himself and give this come, this Hebrew hoy. It's the heart of God. And I wonder if something like this might have helped Paul say to to us that he became all things to all people so that by all means he might save some. No matter what it took to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul would become that. And we know he did this without compromise, and that's a whole other subject. But here's God becoming a merchant, as it were, in order to call his people to repent and to return to him. This is the heart of God. It's a beautiful advance notice of our Lord Jesus Christ, who as man would take up something like the same sympathizing voice. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I am, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is Jesus Christ, who as man was God. He never ceased being God. He was fully man. He could call angels, legions of angels down at any moment. He had all power. Everything that God is, he is and always was. And yet, what is he saying? Come to me. And this voice is so much like in Isaiah chapter 55. He speaks of wine. He speaks of wine here. Wine is messianic blessing, messianic fullness. Jesus' first sign was to turn water to wine, bountiful wine, better than the best that had come before. And he says, "By have milk, and milk is sustenance for the body. God caring about the whole person, our spirit, with the wine, the Jesus Christ bounty in the redemption that we have in him, and milk as he takes care of our bodies as well. Well, this call to come, this hoy, is extended to a people who are about 900 miles from their homeland, about 900 millions upon millions of light years from God, if you think of it that way. And come, says the Lord, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. We need to trust him. Have you been in this situation where your sin has been building and building and building upon you? The Lord, through all kinds of providences and all kinds of circumstances been reminding you of it and you keep putting it aside ignoring it i'll pick that up another day i'll remember it another time what holds us back what keeps us from our knees immediately hitting the floor and our heads being bowed and going to the lord right then is it a matter of trust do we really trust god to hear us and really trust and believe the forgiveness that he says he gives. You need trust. 
We need to do the hard work on our side of drawing near to God. We need to go to him in prayer. We need to go to him in Bible study. We need to impress Christ's mind onto our own, Christ's mind being found in the words of Scripture. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, and this is hard work. Now, how much effort do we put into things that we don't trust, that we don't think are going to pay off? I was talking to a gentleman who a year ago graduated from university, studied economics. I've forgotten his name. I studied a little economics in school many, many years ago. College. It's a hard subject. You don't do that hard work unless you trust that something is going to happen that's good, that's better, that's going to pay off for all that effort. Isn't that true? And as an analogy, is that not our Christian life? To do this hard work of recognizing our sin, of confessing it, of going to God with it, and then also even more difficult, mortifying it. And why do we do all this? How do we proceed and grow more and more into the image of Christ? Is it not because we trust that God's word is true? And as we do this hard spiritual work, this sort of work that Paul likens to an athlete straining towards the goal, discipline in his body, soldiers who practice and work and are disciplined, those sorts of analogies. As we do this hard work, do we not do it because we believe that the end result is going to be worth it? And not just better, not just best, but as good as God says it will be. And what does God say it will be? It will be transformation into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord. Or we'll never quite get there in this life, will we? But every step we take, even though that step leaves us infinitely far from his image, ultimately, every step we take is an image, it was a step towards that worthwhile goal. There's something in Isaiah 55, that beautiful hoy, that sympathizing voice that's really hard for us. This is hard for me. I don't know if it is for you, but I can imagine it's for at least many of us here to trust that God really does sympathize. Again, we think of God as there and us as here. As God has created, and we're simply part of this thing that's happening down here, and he's so holy, he's so pure, he's so righteous, that he has really nothing to do with it here, this deism. But sometimes we feel that way. We become practical deists. If you ever feel that way, I have a cure for you right here from the scripture. It's to believe and trust that God really does sympathize with us. That he cares as a living, caring father that he is as tender as his word says it is as a nursing mother that even our smallest concern is an accent ready to be made buoyant do you believe that god sympathizes with you do you believe that god really has entered into your experience as minute as that would be in relation to all the cosmos you know in christ jesus god became man You read about that in the opening of John's Gospel. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. God became man in Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, God lived as you do and as I do. In Christ Jesus, God who became man, He felt the power of temptation. He felt the sorrow of loss. He knew hunger. He felt pain. 
Thus, we really do have a sympathetic high priest who really does sympathize with us. And why? Because he lived it. He knows the pain. He knows the issue. He knows the challenge. He knows the heartaches. He knows the joys. And so when he intercedes on your behalf, when you fall down in repentance and prayer and seek his forgiveness for whatever it is that brings you to that point, know that he who intercedes for you, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, he does so relating to you. You can trust him because he's been where you are. He goes to the Father as our only mediator. He goes to the Father as God who became man and felt in his own, in his own life everything and anything we go to him for. Now is that not the call of this water vendor that God takes up in Isaiah 55? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money. In other words, I know what you need. I've been on that hot, dusty trail. And here I am in sympathy with you. I care for you. Just come to me and buy some of this water. I know you'll be satisfied. We need to trust God in this way. We need to trust his mercy. We need to trust his mercy. Remember, this people was in Babylon. And as they're being called back to Judah, called back to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed some seven years before, they would read these words that had been written before, they, before Babylon was even really a power. And now they're going to look at them and remember what God had done. And remember what God now promises. We need to trust his mercy. He says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness for the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now again, think of this. There you are in Babylon. You've been exiled 70 years before. You're settled. You're prosperous. You're integrated. And you're respected. And you, you hear a rumor that the Lord is calling you back to the homeland. And you reread these words, as it were, written a century before and prepared for this very day. And you remember that Babylonian army smashing through the city's defenses. You remember the slaughter of your friends and your sons, your daughters being abused, the temple being desecrated. Your family marched 900 miles, disgraced and defeated, all by God's specific will. God who unabashedly takes credit for all that. Mercy? Are you saying I'm going to trust the mercy of this God? And the answer is resoundingly yes. Absolutely. Because punishment of sin is not antithetical to mercy. If God didn't punish sin, how would you ever know that your sins have been forgiven? It's almost be almost like living life just hoping that he didn't notice that he had forgotten about your sins. That one slipped by him. But then we walk around with our head, our hand over our heads and wonder where we're going to get smited from heaven because God finally remembered, oh, that's right. She did this and he did that. 
Now I'll get them. No, that's not our God at all. That's not anything like our God. The fact that God does punish sin means that we can trust his mercy. Because when his mercy has been extended by forgiveness of sin, it's full, it's complete. There's nothing held back. You know, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Do you know when Jeremiah wrote that? He wrote that right after the disaster happened that sent this people into exile. In other words, when he wrote this, he was looking at the desecrated, destroyed temple. You see, punishment goes hand in hand with mercy. We can trust God's mercy because in his mercy he punishes sin. We can trust God's mercy because in his mercy, when Jesus Christ said it is finished, it was finished and forgiveness was accomplished. However much your sin, his mercy is more. His mercies are not showered down on us because of us. They come because mercy is God's nature. They flow because of who and what he is. He is merciful because his nature is mercy. How do they come to us? How does this mercy come to us? Well, it's all because of Jesus Christ. All of God's mercy is through him. As the Apostle Paul says, the promises of God find their yes and find their amen in him. His mercies, God's mercies are reliable because they are found in him who died and now lives forever. In him in whom God was pleased to dwell bodily. You can trust God's mercy because in mercy he punished your sin. Does this not make repentance more valuable to you? Knowing that when we repent before God, as this people in Isaiah 55 is called to repent and return to God. When Jesus Christ called out, it is finished, it was finished indeed. The veil hiding the mercy seat was rent and the mercy it promised was unleashed. And therefore we can trust God. Therefore we can know that his mercies are sure. We can know that his mercies are certain. Because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. He says, you shall call a people you do not know. Well, God knew exactly who his son would die for. He knows who he predestined from the foundation of the world in eternity past to be like Jesus. But Jesus, in his humanity, was satisfied that all whom the Father gave to him will surely come to him. You know, we see in his life, we do not see in his life, I should say, where he said, okay, I will evangelize this one because he's one of the predestined ones and I'm God and I know everything and I know that this one is going to come to me and the opposite was someone else. No, Jesus, just as you and I would because he lived as a man, evangelized and spoke of God to whomever he could. So you should call a people who do not know you. This simply means that the people that God intends to hear the gospel will indeed hear the gospel. That the gospel will go forth. It will pierce the heart of each one that God would have to be in his son, Jesus Christ. So you shall call a people you do not know. It doesn't mean Jesus was ignorant. It simply means that he was willing to go and evangelize and let come to him all whom the Father gave him, as we have in John chapter 10. And then he says, a nation that you do not know shall run to you. Now who is that nation who run to God? A nation you, that did not know you shall run to you. 
Well, Peter answers this for us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's speaking of the church. He's speaking of you here this morning. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what is this mercy you've received? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? What mercy have you received? The sure mercies of David. Rather than go through a whole lecture on what those mercies actually are, we can know very quickly and very succinctly and very exactly what the sure mercies of David are. In Acts chapter 13, 34, the inspired word of God preached by the Apostle Paul says this, and he's quoting here from Isaiah 55. He says, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So what are the sure mercies of David? What is it that assures us that our repentance is valuable? That our repentance grows us in a way that is worth the effort? And it's not just the best thing that we can do. It's not just the better thing we can do. But every bit as God says it is. Every bit as good as he says it is. How do we gain all that? How do we gain that assurance? Where is that trust to be? What's the resurrection? God's mercy to sinners. The sign and certification that we will follow him in a resurrection like his. The steadfast, sure love of David is the gospel of David's greatest son, who is Jesus Christ. His steadfast, sure love of David, as we have in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Trust God's mercy. It's mercy that put Jesus Christ on the cross. Only he could pay for our sins. If we were paying for our sins, it would be like the parable in Luke with Lazarus and rich man, where that rich man is going to pay and pay and pay and pay and pay and pay. And you get the point. In Jesus Christ, though, God's mercy, he put the one who could finally say it was finished, who could take in himself all of God's wrath, who could become sin for us? And why could he become sin for us and come out victorious saying it is finished? Because he had no sin to pay for of his own. All of his suffering could be attributed, imputed to others, to you, to me, to everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's mercy that put Jesus Christ on the cross. Mercy to sinners. Mercy to we who could no way pay for our own. So we trust him in that way. We trust him to answer when we seek him. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So he says, forsake. Very simple word is forsake, is when a man forsakes his mother and father for the sake of his wife. 
as when the corners of the field are forsaken for the sake of the poor, as when Israel again and again and again would forsake the Lord for Canaanite idols. Forsake. Let the wicked man forsake his ways. But forsake is to turn around from it. It's not the same word as repent, but it's like it. Forsake is when Jesus Christ called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, there's no easy way to or from the cross. The cross is without money or without price. It's true. It, it is set before your eyes with God's sympathetic hoy, if you will, as he calls you to it. Jesus' way to the cross was his perfect sinless life, lived to God's glory. Your way to the cross is to forsake wicked ways that come from wicked thoughts. But we need to trust that the repentance has real effects on us and on God. That when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to believe and trust that that transaction is real. And first, we must recognize wicked thoughts and ways. We must know our Bibles and the commands of our Lord that he gave us. And it's in the Bible we say God's righteousness. We have the mind of Christ. And we see ourselves thinking different or acting different from it. There's our wicked wave. There's what we must forsake. We need to live this steady diet of believing and trustful repentance. We need to believe that the Lord really will abundantly pardon. No easy ways to the cross. Not for us. Certainly wasn't for Jesus. You remember what the devil offered Jesus? He said, all these, so now the kingdoms of the world, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Now, you don't want to pass by this too quickly as we think about our sympathetic high priest. Sure, you know, we think, well, Jesus was perfect. Jesus is God. He's impeccable. He cannot sin. But in some way that is really, really hard to explain, this temptation and all the other temptations in Jesus' life was hard. He would and he could only follow God. But understand that our enemy is clever. He's intelligent. He's malignant. He wasn't wasting time or words. Jesus resisted this action and in spirit didn't take the bait. He didn't want the bait. But never think that it was easy. As a quick aside, my best ex explanation for why this was hard for him who could not sin, why was this hard for him to resist for him who could only live to God's glory with every breath, my best estimation is that he, had, he accepted, had he accepted this, the cross would have been removed. Now, that was never even remotely possible, but in his flesh, remember, he prayed three times for the cup of the cross to be removed. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So the battle against sin and the flesh and the devil isn't easy. It's hard. It's desperate warfare. It's like the Borg. The enemy is always modifying his strategy to get through your defenses. It's not easy to hear the quiet cry of the vendor who says, come, much less follow it. 
But understand this, greater is he who says come than he who is in the world. And know that you can trust God's forgiveness and what he gives you in Jesus Christ because Christ went through it. Because those temptations that Jesus Christ resisted in the wilderness were real. And they were powerful. And he didn't just say, well, I'm God. I I, I don't want that. It was so much more than that. Jesus trusted his Father that the glories that awaited were infinitely greater than the suffering that would open those gates. He trusted his very soul when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you trust his pardon? It's hard to live a life of confession and repentance if we don't trust the pardon that God promises But here's why we can trust us pardon. Here's why when he says he forgives, we can say he truly has forgiven. And the reason is in verse 8 and 9, he's not like you and me. God is not like us. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And ask yourself, why is this statement here? And the answer is what came before in verses 6 through 9. And the first word here in verse 8, which is for. See, the word for is the reason for something. And what follows the for is the reason why we can trust God to abundantly pardon. Why? Why can you trust God's pardon? Why can you trust 1 John 1, 9? Why do you know that he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Would you go to God in repentance if you didn't believe and trust that? Why can you trust that? Because he's not like us. He's not vindictive. He's not inconsistent. He's not capricious. He doesn't want to hold something over you, so he's always got the superior position against you, which is what we so often do with each other. You do a lot of marriage counseling at my church. And this is one thing that we find over and over again is one has forgiven, but that's kind of in quotes because it's not fully forgiven. You've forgiven you. I'm going to let it go this time, but I'm going to remember. That's not forgiveness. That's not Christian forgiveness anyway. But we're talking about God's forgiveness. And why can you trust that his his pardon is abundant? Because he's just not like us. We can leave it at that. He's just not like us. Not like us at all. We resist mercy. We love to have it, but we don't like dispensing it so much. She doesn't deserve my mercy, not this time. I could forgive almost anything, but not that. We'll know that God's mercy is greater than our sin. One sure way to keep from believing that is to forget that his thoughts are not our thoughts, nor our ways his ways. We put him into a mold. We put him in a mold shaped like us and say, this is what I would do, of course, and then we project that onto God. And this is not so uncommon. This is not God in his word through the prophet who says, I am not a man that I should lie. I'm not a man that I should tell falsehoods. I'm not a man. I'm not like you at all. So stop trying to make me like you. Stop thinking of me. Stop limiting me in those kinds of terms. Well, as the apostle says, we have the mind of Christ, which is the scripture. A mind that he gives us in his word 
that as we read it, as we know it, we become more and more like him. Well, here's a piece of that mind. Just one piece of that mind as we think of God's mercy and what he wants us to be like him. Is therefore you shall be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's a verse that tells us something about our Father in heaven, how different we are from him, but it tells us to be like him. Be kind to one another, Ephesians 4.32. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Well, forsaking our ways, forsaking our thoughts is trust. Trust that God has given us the mind of Christ and that as we imbue that mind into us, as we're transformed by the renewing of the word, it's not just better, it far exceeds the best. It's as good as God says it will be because it makes us more like Jesus Christ. Trust the Lord that as we repent more and more, as we see our sin more and more clearly, as we mortify the deeds of the flesh, Isaiah's let him forsake, as we do this hard work which Paul likens to the athlete's discipline, as we strain for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, it's all worth it. Trust him because he does what he says he will do. Verse 10, Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's just one verse. God will do what he says he will do. What does he say he will do there? It means that in Jesus Christ there will be forgiveness. That he sent his son and his son would not return to heaven before he'd accomplished that which Jesus Christ came to accomplish. You can trust God because he accomplishes his word. That's the very beginning of our Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he spoke six times and everything became. And he sent his son the word that became flesh, and we can trust him because all that God says he will do, he does and has done. He accomplishes his will by his word. And that word here is a word of pardon. These people in Babylon would have to read this and say, okay, so we were punished this horribly by this pagan, violent nation. That's pardon? God says he will abundantly pardon not just pardon, but abundantly pardon. Doing abundantly far more than we can think or ask. True pardon is just too much to believe. But God says that he will abundantly pardon and he says that he accomplishes what he sends his word to do. And we need to trust that. We need to hang on to that. Ultimately, we can trust the Lord to restore everything in its proper order. You know, Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of creation groaning with us as we're in these bodies. And you've seen, as I struggle up these stairs, and you're going to see some drama in me getting back down. These bodies are deteriorating. We groan as things are winding down, it seems. 
But behold, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Everything is new. We need to trust the Lord that that's just a picture. That's just a hint of what's going to come when Jesus Christ returns and calls him to himself. Trust the Lord to restore everything to its proper order, including you, including me. And as we go through this hard work, as we're speaking of here in Isaiah 55, of confession and repentance and trusting, we know that we are just gaining a toehold in what it will ultimately be when Christ returns and God makes all things new. He says, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is restoration. This is all things made new. This is the curse being reversed. This is telling the people in Babylon to come away from that prosperous nation and all they had there and say, you trust me. Your land has been desolate for a long time. It's drought ridden. There's no economy. You really have no borders. When you come back, you're not going to have an army. You're not going to have a king. And yet, what does God say here? All creation is going to have joy in seeing them return. Just a picture, just a hint of what is to come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and God makes all things new. So Isaiah 55, highly evangelical, calls people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and take from him what they truly need. And it has no price. There is no money. There is no price that can buy what God offers. It's a highly evangelical chapter. But his main purpose is to call God's people to trust him. I stand before God's people this morning. Do you trust him? Do you know that what God offers you in Jesus Christ is not just better than what you have? It's not just the best that you could afford. It's just not superior to everything else in the world. It's every bit as good as God says it is. Let's believe this. Let us trust God in this. And let us, as we go to him in constant repentance and confession and knowing his forgiveness, do so knowing that it is every bit as good as God says it is to be grown more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and I thank you for the opportunity to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to this people. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart have been pleasing in your sight and useful to those who have heard. We ask, Father, that you would bless us with ever greater strides in trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. We ask, Father, that you would continue to grow us into his image. Watch over us, Father, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.